there are a lot of people from a principle standpoint very much are aligned in terms of their personal principles with what it is that the Washington Post does, seeking the truth, holding power to account, telling stories which are consequential to culture. Welcome to the Contextual Advertising 101 podcast. If you're an advertising or marketing leader who has heard about contextual advertising but wants to learn more, then this show is for you. Throughout this podcast series, we will bring you a deep dive into some of the core concepts of contextual advertising, as well as interviews from marketing executives and publishers using contextual advertising today. This episode is brought to you by SeedTag, the world's leading contextual advertising company. Contextual intelligence allows you to engage with consumers within their universe of interest on a cookie-free basis. By delivering ads into content, we capture users' attention faster and retain it longer. Learn more and reach out to us at seedtag.com. Hello, my name's Dal and I'm the head of programmatic at Seedtag. In today's episode, we are going to talk about the impact of the death of the cookie and more specifically from a publisher's perspective. I'm delighted to be joined by Pete Beanie. Pete currently leads global agency partnerships at the Washington Post. He joined the Post in 2020 with over 20 years experience in media and advertising, having previously led Spotify's global partnership with WPP. Pete wears a number of hats at the Post, while his core responsibility is building out their agency partnership practice, is also leading their programmatic sales efforts, as well as working to keep its traditional print products audience top of mind of agencies. Hi Pete, how's it going? Good, Dal. Good to hear your dulcet tones. It's been a long time. I know, it's been, it's been a while now. So what, three and a half, four years, I think, since we both worked at Spotify. Although it feels like yesterday, strangely. I know, I know. We, we, I think sat, even though we were in different teams, we sat really close together, I, th- I think. And uh, I, do, I do miss the uh, endless thrashing of table tennis that I, <laughs> that I did get from you, I think. Um, that, the whole culture of uh, table tennis at Spotify, I, d- I do miss that. And obviously now since COVID and working from home, there's some, that's you know, a, a big element of, uh, of, you know, of working together as a team that you would miss out on. Yes, I'm. I'm concerned uh, that my uh, that my skills will have become considerably rusty since since COVID COVID began. Uh, I think we'd probably be a better match now, Dal, than we were. Oh, really? Okay. Well, I'll, I'll take you up on that. If uh, if I ever do get to uh, travel in the next ten years, <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll yeah, I'll, I'll hit you up on that. Um, but yeah, how's it been at the Washington Post? Uh, a couple of years now, just under. Yeah, so I've been at the Washington Post since uh, March 2020. Um, so I really picked my moment to join um, and to move my family over from London to, to New York. Obviously, none of us had any clue what was about to uh, unfold in front of us. Um, but that being said, it's been a wonderful place to work. Um, you know, the Washington Post obviously has a, a huge heritage and and obviously with so much going on in the news cycle at the time that I joined, it felt like I was really, you know, being integrated into a into a publication of historical significance during a time of historical significance. So that, you know, I, I'm entirely grateful to to Joy Robbins at The Post for bringing me on um, because, yeah, I, I just feel like I, I'm, I'm really blessed to have joined this institution at the time that I did, despite obviously the challenges of, you know, the day-to-day challenges of, of facing the, the pandemic, but, you know, to be honest, I would have faced those anywhere that I would have gone. Um, no, no one has been immune from the you know overreaching effects of of the of the pandemic. Yeah, that's that's the thing, isn't it? Everyone's 
in some shape or form around the world any industry that you you know might work in and any friends and family that you talk to you know the word covid and and the two words coronavirus i think everyone can relate to it and have their own story and you could probably do a an hour podcast two hour podcast just talking about um everyone's experiences um away from work i think um but how has that how has that shift been from working over at spotify such a i suppose dynamic audio company um and moving into a more traditional media uh, you know print paper and as well as you know kind of that audience is did did you see that shift and how was it quite difficult or was it was it kind of more similar than you thought it would be i didn't really come into it with any preconceived notions i mean i think what attracted me to the post was actually the marriage between um you know all of the investments that have been made on the engineering and tech side here um and the obviously the the traditional role that the Washington Post has played as you, you know as a as a um, harbor of consequential journalism um, holding you know that holds power to account and shines light in dark corners you know that 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 aspect of you know it, and it's such a significant the the role that that storytelling and journalism from the Post has played in the American democracy over the last hundred years plus you know is is a is an enormous thing to be part of um but but i think that that's now married to a a very forward-thinking very engineering-led organization um that that gets missed a lot right so it actually didn't feel that different to get back to the original question because there is as much emphasis here on technology and engineering as there was at spotify it's just that because the Washington Post has this heritage, it leads people to wrongfully, I think, assume that it is a business that's completely rooted in the past, which it isn't. I mean, obviously, it has a wonderful heritage from which to work, and we attract the world's best journalism, you know, journalists. Um, but it's it is very much a, a tech forward business. Is that would you say that's part of your role then, or when you came in? Uh, it was a lot with uh, you know you were talking about the tech the tech side the back end the the technology that's powering everything that the washington post does um because like you said you know people or agencies brands might not have known the capabilities uh, in the past would you say you were focus you have been focusing on that and and pushing that the technology side yeah i have been but also the applicable you know the applicability of the technology that we have i think you know since since the post was bought by Jeff Bezos, I think a lot has been written about those investments that have been made. Um, but I think it it hasn't necessarily translated, you know, it, it, because that's a reasonably recent acquisition. If you think about it in the in the in the timeline of the actual history of the of the post, it takes time to really establish what the modern post is as compared to what the the post used to be. Um, and yeah, we're, we are still trying to bring that message to the marketplace and bring that message to agencies and bring that message to senior clients. Um, but it also, you know, now is a lot about what can we what can we be doing that shows that we are a tech forward um, business rather than telling people that we're a tech forward business. So that's been a lot of the focus of my team has been just really establishing our credentials amongst those senior leaders within agencies but then start starting to show them what we mean by being a technology forward publisher. 
um, in the form of alphas and beta tests and, and you know, giving them a, a look under the hood of, of some of the work that we do here on the engineering side. And does programmatic sit at the heart of that? Um, you know, your roles, your role includes the development of, of programmatic cells within the company. Um, so, yeah, how, how is how has that shift been towards programmatic channels? Yeah, when I when I joined the post, um, you know, programmatic programmatic has been a has been a boon to the post from a financial standpoint, and but very much from that kind of yield uh, standpoint. Like you know, the open obviously brings a lot of revenue to the post. It does to many major publishers that have you know significant reach like we do. But um, but where we've really started to pivot has been more looking at programmatic through the lens of being somewhat a replacement for um, for some types of direct buying and to some extent to shore up the 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 decline of the print products right because if you think about it we have been incredibly successful at running you know in our digital o o side of our business we've been very very successful at driving large branded content programs multi-million dollar uh, programs for a number of major blue chip clients. Um, but those are big, heavy lifts, both often for the client as well as for ourselves. Uh, and they require a great deal of commitment. You know, these are multi-year um, operations in most cases. But uh, but as print declines, you know, and print has been very much a traditional media purchase. You know, you know what you're buying. You're buying a space in the paper. It has a certain cost to it. And it has a lot less tra- transactional friction. You know, in a traditional print buy, somebody knows what they're buying. They buy the space, you negotiate on price, you sell that space, and it's done. Right. And that actually is a lot more akin to programmatic sales, obviously, but with programmatic sales, it's a lot more automated. Um, so we're starting to look a lot more at how can we increase the amount of programmatic direct work that we do, because we understand that both agencies and clients are looking to gain as much efficiency as they can. Automating a number of their straight media purchase processes, you know, is beneficial to them. And we need to be able to uh, have enough bodies in the market to, to be able to access that demand in a way which isn't completely automated like the open is. Um, and because we feel that as time goes on, you know, yes, obviously everybody has been given a bit of a stay of execution as far as the, the death of the cookie is concerned. Um, but it, it, it is also something that we have to think about, which is how do we build a greater level of direct person to person relationships, even in the programmatic space. And that requires butts on seats, you know, that there needs to be human beings as part of those transactions, you know, they aren't fully automated. Um, so that's where a lot of our investment from my team has been is, is trying to get the right people on board within the post so that we, um, we can be having those human to human relationships that are still required to make programmatic work. Yeah. And you, and you would have probably remembered from our Spotify days, the company wide rollout of the trade desk um, training and the, you know, the, the, I think it was about a 10 hours of training. So, um, there's obviously different ways to, um, like you said, put bums on, uh, uh, seats and uh, getting more people out there in the market to talk about a programmatic offering. Um, 
one way is is training like i said uh, like uh, what spotify did but obviously going in market and and hiring aggressively as well um how do you find that sweet spot and and what have you guys been doing is it a mix of both or are you kind of going towards one way or another it has been a mix of both i think we've you know like a lot of businesses including spotify have come to the conclusion that at the end of the day the the ability to understand the programmatic marketplace is a necessity of any salesperson now um, in digital, it's not a, it's, there's no optionality to it really. I think for anyone that, that wants to be successful in their career going forward, because ultimately clients have their own strategies as to how they want to spend money with any publisher or with any platform. And there's a responsibility on the shoulders of that publisher or platform to meet the client where they want to be. Right. And when I say client, I mean, that can, that can be a marketer as much as it can be an agency. But so, so in order to meet those clients where they are, there has to be a certain degree of programmatic competency across the entire organization. So, yeah, so we, you know, we have embarked on the trade desk training here at the post as well. Um, and, you know, and have an evergreen process of training, which goes on to our entire sales staff to ensure that they are as up to speed as they can be on how programmatic is evolving, because it is always evolving. I mean, that, that is the nature of, of the business. Um, but so that they're, you know, really the aim that we have is very customer focused. And that is that there is no friction being placed on the client by us that is driving in one direction or the other. You know, we want to fit in with their investment strategy. And if that's programmatic, we need to be able to service that. And if it's direct O&O and a major, you know, brand integration, we have to be able to uh, also as effectively be able to service that kind of revenue. So, so we see it as not really a choice. Everyone has to be good at programmatic within the post. Yeah, I think, I think that's the key thing. Um, throughout my career, it's always been joining publishers at a, an early stage where we've gone through those those stages of upskilling ensuring the materials and the collateral and the tools um a hundred percent that's you know for, for the salespeople to be confident to go out and market and talk about programmatic freely uh, and be more consultative um so yeah i i think um i think it is important for salespeople to obviously have that training um but also you would sometimes need those leads to come in um, that have already have that experience talking to the right people, you know, focusing on the trading desk, focusing on the DSPs, the SSPs, the all the acronyms that are that are out there. Um, so yeah, I think I think that is uh, an important thing. So uh, how how hard has it been to find these people in the market for you, for the Washington Post, or are they readily available? Do you have do you have these programmatic leads that are you know jumping at the chance to join the Post? Well, I was lucky in that I in- inherited. A partial team when I got here who were very capable. Um, so it was really just about adding to that. And it was also about how do we organizationally structure programmatic so that it doesn't seem different to the rest of the way that we sell within the, the post. Because I think that that is where a lot of businesses struggle is they do, to your earlier point about all the acronyms that float around, th- there is a lot of I would argue in some cases, needless complexity within the programmatic ecosystem that scares people off and is really intimidating, um, especially if they're coming into it 
with little experience. Um, so, so we need, you know, we needed to look for people that were going to be able to be really highly consultative internally and start to demystify a lot of that for the rest of our staff. Um, but also we don't want to separate programmatic as to being something completely different. We just want to look at it as a different route into a different route for revenue to enter the Washington Post, right? Not as some separate and completely different entity that requires a whole different skill set to um, to selling any anything else within the Washington Post, be it Washington Post Live, print, digital O and O. So, so that that meant that we needed to align the processes that we currently had in in the rest of our business. So, you know, post-sale support being a really good example of that. We've structured it now so that, you know, we have a frontline programmatic sales force who are there really to, you know, to, to, to be the face of the Washington Post within agencies, you know, uh, well, within agencies, programmatic departments and programmatic trading desks, um, and to give, give support and confidence to the rest of the sales team when it comes to selling programmatic. Um, but that when it starts to get down to the nuts and bolts, which can actually be pretty labor intensive, you know, there, there is, I think, a fallacy about programmatic that it's kind of, you know, set it and forget it that you, you know, you switch on a PMP and you walk away and the money comes flowing in, which it doesn't, you know, there is a lot of, there's a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of upkeep. There's a lot of troubleshooting that goes on. And if you think about it from a direct digital, direct sales organizations usually have CSMs, CSM teams which service that. Um, so we've gone and we've aligned all of our programmatic processes to our digital O&O processes. So they, they operate exactly the same so that you don't have a situation where a client partner in our, in our company, you know, when they sell a direct, a digital O&O campaign, there's a whole team that supports the delivery of that campaign after they've sold it. The same was not true of programmatic. So we needed to make that true of programmatic so that our, our teams felt like there was not a huge degree of uh, disparity between what it felt like to sell digital ONO and what it feels like to sell programmatic. Yeah, I think that service element is, is vital. I think um, too many people within the industry or, um, or don't know much about the, the programmatic side of things uh, always think, you know, you set up a programmatic campaign on the supply side and you forget about it. Um, and uh, you just leave it up to the you know your your clients to run the campaign and optimize and um you know there is a bit of hand holding to do uh, even on the media owner side you need to be in constant dialogue dialogue after the campaign um but then it's about who who is responsible for that is it sales or, or are they just after you know new clients business development um there is that csm role you know client service managers that are that hybrid i think between you know the the ops and uh, all that middle person between ops and sales. So I think they're they're vital in this in this scenario. Um, but I think yeah, more and more media owners, more and more publishers that I've been speaking to anyway, um, are hiring these these kind of hybrid roles really, where um, they have that technical experience, but then they also have the client facing experience as well. Yeah, and just to get back to your original point about you know has it been easy to to hire in in this atmosphere? I think it has, it's just required, obviously, a little bit more proactivity. Um, one thing that we really do benefit from is um, the post 
means a lot to people, you know, to, to the right kind of person. You know, when I first joined, the term that was used is, you know, the post is looking for missionaries, not mercenaries, right? And there are a lot of people who, from a principle standpoint, very much are aligned, you know, in terms of their personal principles with what it is that the Washington Post does, you know, the, the seeking the truth, um, you know, holding power to account, telling stories which are consequential to, consequential to culture. Um, so, you know, those are the kind of people that we're looking for, but when we find them, they are very motivated to work at the post. So we are, we really benefit from that. That's a real kind of tailwind that we have when it comes to, to hiring. So, so I benefit from that as we, you know, look out for talent. Definitely the brand brand must help massively. Um, going slightly, uh, I suppose, ch- change of topic really, but I wanted to get your stance on, um, obviously the the impending death of the cookie. We we saw Google's announcement that's delayed it uh, again. Um, but how how is how how have you guys at at the Washington Post thought about the death of the cookie, and how have you changed any any technology or any uh, branding or messaging on on your side? No, not really. I think I think we are we are fortunate, right? I think what the death of the cookie is going to mean is that you know some businesses are going to benefit from it some are going to be very hurt by it um some of the investments that the technology investments that have been made here at the post prior to that announcement even being made um will benefit us when that day comes um we are still looking at it from the viewpoint of okay it may have been delayed but it's not going away right so you know some of the impetus for you know, the removal of the cookie in the first place, we are moving into a much more privacy focused and privacy conscious world. That's not going to stop. Right. So, so it just means that everyone's got a little bit more time to prepare. Um, but they'd be foolish to think that it's just going to go back into a completely, you know, identity ruled advertising ecosystem forevermore. Um, but, but we, you know, certainly the investments that were made in, in the, the Zeus technology suite, um, and in particular Zeus insights, you know, our, our ability to, to, to understand our readers from their, you know, their, their browsing and topic history and their, their, you know, the, the contextual targeting engine that we have and that we built, um, will suit us well in a post cookie world. So. So we didn't really need to shift that much. There wasn't a huge amendment that was required on our part. And I think that that's kind of, it's, it's just going to be an even more entrenched case of the haves and the have nots. So businesses like ours that have very, very strong brand equity and a very deep trust-based relationship with its user base uh, will likely benefit. Um, those without are going to be in trouble. And, and going back to the brand of the Washington Post, do you think that will help in a lot of ways for the agencies that are now thinking about the death of the cookie? You know, they want to be across premium content. Um, you know, they the, the conversations that you've had in the market, and I know even in your role at Spotify, you work very closely with the agency groups and, and C-suite, uh, people that work within there. How, how are they thinking about it? And are they, you know, reducing their potential site list of partners from a hundred or a thousand 
you know, by 90% is, is that kind of what they're doing as well and thinking about? Yeah, I think that they are thinking much along the lines of fewer, bigger, better, right? And because we are in the bigger and better category, we'll probably be the ones that fall into the fewer, right? You don't want to be outside of that, of that circle, um, you know, as that partner selection is being established with the major agency groups. Um, but yeah, in terms of what I hear from, from senior, you know, senior personnel within agencies is that there is a real need to now establish stronger relationships with the bigger players in the market who have verifiable audiences and, um, you know, and, and have a deeper relationship with their, their customers or their, you know, their readers in our case. Um, and that there is less, there's going to be less appetite from clients in their view of, you know, being able to just get super cheap CPMs and extremely large reach, some of which won't even be real, let's be honest. Um, and, and the idea of being able to, to reach any individual in the cheapest possible place that they can and therefore driving efficiencies that way that that world is, is gone. Um, but it, that it isn't necessarily a bad thing um, because ultimately, you know, where we will benefit is that consumers inherently understand or will, will make ju value judgments on brands based on where they see those brands. So I think to some extent, some of what has driven the industry up until this point has been a fallacy. And that is that, you know, that Dow Gill, you know, is if they're an attractive consumer to my brand. I thought this was going somewhere else there, but yeah, no. <laughs> consumer. Okay. Yeah, that, that, that you as a, as a potential target for a brand um, will recognize the difference between seeing that brand on a, you know, on the Washington Post and randomly seeing that brand on a long tail website that does not hold as much value in your mind as a, you know, as a, as a editorial product um, and that they, they shouldn't necessarily see the cheap CPM as the be all and end all because it isn't necessarily saying about their brand what they might want it to uh, or establishing the same value in your mind as a consumer um, as they might do somewhere else, which is slightly more expensive, but where, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of established trust and credibility in the, in the organization and the, and the content in which, around which the, the brand is being seen. Back to your point about agencies and brands now only selecting a, a small, small amount of potential media owners. Does that then give the power back to the publishers, would you say? You know, in the past, it's always been, especially in the programmatic ecosystem, you know, we've always, as media owners, been setting our prices and um, it doesn't happen often, but, it, it, you know, the agency could turn around and say, well, I can buy your inventory, you know, for a fraction of that in the open market. And, and due to the death of the cookie, there's less third-party data now that they can overlay. So now they're having to talk direct to you know, the clients are having to talk direct to publishers like yourselves. Does that then give, put you guys back in the driving seat in terms of, um, you know, negotiating, whether it's deals, whether it's rates, 
or uh, or not so much, do you think? No, I definitely think it puts us in the driving seat. But also, you know, if you look at it through the lens of the Washington Post, what what a what a brand has access to on the open is a fraction of what they have access to in programmatic direct or digital ONO with us in terms of you know sophisticated contextual targeting capabilities. All of that is not really available to them on on the open. So the full suite of our technology can only really be leveraged with a relationship with the Washington Post rather than trying to do that over the open. So I think we were already kind of going in that direction anyway. Um, and there's a lot that we can do matching advertiser first party data to, you know, our contextual understanding and being able to find those, those you know, so, so it's in the best interest, or at least in our circumstance, it, there is, there is so much more that a brand or an agency can do with the Washington Post if they have a relationship with the Washington Post that they can achieve than they can if they're, you know, attempting to look at it only through the lens of, of price and essentially keeping an arm's length from, from the post. And, and when I say that, I mean, you know, looking at our inventory through the open rather than through direct or through programmatic direct. Is it, is it safe to say then the programmatic partners that you guys, uh, the Washington Post have are, uh, you know, in, in the same sense that you're only working with, with, with a few or uh, are, the, are you working with a whole range of different different partners or are you really seeing what kind of value that they bring to you? We try to be agnostic, right? Ultimately, it goes back to that same sentiment, which I mentioned earlier in this conversation, and that was that we want to be wherever our clients want to be, right? We, we have to be able to, to fit to their requirements. And so being, you know, technology or platform agnostic is an important part of that um, because we, we aim to reduce friction wherever we possibly can. So if we are forcing brands to go through particular tech partners in which to access imagery on the, on the Washington Post, that inherently creates friction. And that can, you know, then it becomes, there's an option, you know, whether, whether the client is, can be bothered to get through some sort of workaround or, or to find another way onto our, our platform. And, and we want to do our best to, you know, to, to avoid that wherever we can. So we'll work with as, as, as many partners as, as it takes to make that a reality. Definitely. And, and it kind of nicely goes on to my, the next point stroke question, which was around obviously COVID, uh, you know, the pandemic that started, you know, early last year, what we saw at CTAG, especially we work with many, many different publishers. And a lot of them are, are news publishers. Um, and even in the, in the trade press, there was a lot of um, conversations about big news sites, big news publications lost out on a lot of ad revenue because of uh, just simple block lists and simple terms that were, you know, just taken out. You know, uh, advertisers would block the term COVID or pandemic, not knowing whether that article could have been actually in a, in a positive way where their brand would have worked really nicely on, on that, on that page. Um, how, how did you see that at the Washington post? Obviously uh, you did start just then, so you might not have a lot of this information, but um, how, how, you know, over the last year and a half has that changed and 
um, are advertisers as scared of the word COVID now as they were before? And how has technology helped you in to overcome those, you know, those challenges that I mentioned? I think everybody struggled from it. I think I think there was this this bizarre dichotomy that most major publishers like ourselves faced at the onset of the COVID crisis, and that was, you know, because we are a trusted news source. Um, you know, when somebody's health is at risk, you become a very very popular source of information, right? And rightly so, because you know, when when you have a, a, a you know if you if you have a, a fatal pathogen going around the the society as a whole people want to know how to deal with it and they're going to go to news sources which they trust because the inf because information becomes really really important in that circumstance and obviously what that meant was our page reviews as did many other pub publishers of our of our stature went through the roof at the very same time a lot of the block listing behaviors that were going on by marketers were moving brand dollars away from our publication, right? Which is infuriating to see yeah. at the time because you're thinking, okay, well, this is going to be very good for us from a finance, you know, su financially supporting our journalism at a really important time. But then a lot of this revenue is being steered away. Um, and I think because a lot of it is, I think, I'm going to go out on a limb here, but less sophisticated than, than um, it's marketed to be. A really good example of this, and I'm probably going to butcher this because I'm not actually reading it straight from, from uh, I think it was a LinkedIn post by Adam Foley at The Guardian. Um, and it was very interesting. If memory serves, he was showing how much of The Guardian's digital front page, you know, the masthead was, was being blocked because of the use of the term drugs when the sentiment of the story, the story, I believe, was about um, the breakthrough of the AstraZeneca vaccine, right, in the UK. So to all intents and purposes, a hugely positive news story, right? Probably the most positive news story that would have happened since the onset of the pandemic. But because of the term drugs, because the vaccine was a drug, you know, a lot of the the technology that was being used to keep brands safe um, was essentially ensuring that almost nobody was advertising around that content. So yeah, that's that's such a good point. I think that's why it's so important for there to be constant dialogue and you know getting different perspectives from different technologies and. Um, you know that, that education the, the word again education there needs to be that education in market you know throughout the market it's not just publishers talking to agencies or clients it's tech companies contextual data companies everyone needs to be uh, have, having a conversation I think about about this topic because it's it's such a shame isn't it that you know there's not just one person losing and the cons it's not just the consumer losing out but the publisher will lose out the they'll lose out on revenues they might have to you know go through layoffs etc families are you know affected so yeah it's such a i think it's such an important topic um that needs to be addressed a lot more i think yeah and and in the case of news organizations you have to think of where that revenue is going right that revenue is being used to pay for uh in-depth journalism, which is going to help save lives, right? So, so it is, there is a, a bit of a moral imperative behind this as well. 
And I can understand the, you know, it's a difficult situation that brands face, you know, find themselves in. I think the popularity of Google and Facebook, obviously, is their their levels of reach are unprecedented. Um, but also, you know, the the as as digital and digital publishing has proliferated, uh, it's added a degree of complexity, which poses a huge challenge to a number of advertisers. Um, and they're always looking for businesses that can come in and simplify, right? And I, and I think that is where some of the brand safety verification businesses really benefit because, you know, it does look like a panacea to, to advertisers. They go, okay, great. You know, here we are in a, in a situation where somebody's going to make all this complexity of keeping my brand safe across all these thousands or tens of thousands of sites where my where my advertising is being seen. Um, you know, they're they're going to handle that for me, but it can also be a blunt instrument. Um, you know, and and I think that Facebook and Google too also benefit from that because it allows advertisers to you know, get their reach target, they're able to achieve their reach targets with a single entity, right? They can use, you could choose one or the other or both and really not have to deal with any other media organization within the digital ecosystem, right? You're going to get it. That'd be a boring world, wouldn't it? It would be an incredibly boring world, but you can understand like, you know, if we, if we put this back to like Spotify is a really good example here of, um, what an enormous driver ease and convenience is to humans in general, right? Because if you think about what Spotify was, you know, when Spotify came along, the biggest distribution source for music was piracy, right? And piracy has an amazing price point. It's free. And I, I feel like Spotify's big value add to the music consumer and to the to the to the rights holders, the music ecosystem was essentially proving that ease and convenience is such a great drive, right? Because piracy was a pain in the ass. Let's be honest. Like you know, you might be pulling down a song that was put up there intentionally by a label, you know, and it's a bunch of white noise, or you know, you can't find that one track from an album, and you have to wait for everything to download, and you, you know, it, using file sharing services you know, was an inconvenient process. And Spotify proved that the consumer was willing to pay if you make that a streamlined and convenient process. Um, and I think, you know, a marketer is still a consumer. They're a consumer of media channels in which to place their brand. And what Facebook and Google do a good job of is being a very, very convenient and easy place for them to place the majority of their budget, right? In, you know, in a way that was never possible really before the rise of digital platforms, right? If you think back to, to press days, part of the skill set of, of an agency buyer and agency planners was to understand enough of the titles and the readerships of those titles to, to be able to identify contextually and audience-wise what was the right mix to be most effective for the KPIs your client had, but obviously the top of that is going to be, can you get the reach that they're after? Right. And there was no choice to do that in one place. You had to mix and match. You had to be a, a multi 
media planner. Um, nowadays, you don't necessarily have to be so much of one of those um, in order to attain the reach. But I would also argue that going back to the days of having relationships with more of the large publishers um, means that brands can be effective in a different way. Um, yes, it's it's not as easy and it's not as convenient as having one or two partners, um, but the results will be more effective. Definitely. Um, got one last question for you, Pete. Um, what, what is the future? You th- what, what do you think is the future for publishers after the death of the cookie? The future for publishers, I think, is pretty rosy, depending on which publisher you are. You know, we do, we're trying to support through the Zeus technology platform. You know, we, we, you know, we provide our, we license our technology to over 150 publishers across the U.S., smaller, you know, publishers that are smaller than our, than our own, but, or than our own publication, but, but that are, um, you know, that don't have the, the resource to be able to invest in technology in the same way that we are able to, um, but allow them to be able to leverage in the investments that we've made to the benefit of their their own sites, right? And I think for for a lot of those publishers, that's going to allow them to focus on what they do best, which is publishing high quality journalism and especially local journalism. Um, but I think there's a, there's a very solid future for those publishers, but I think the world will not look as rosy for some intermediary businesses and some of the very, very small publishers, um, who's, who will have benefited from audience buying models as they currently exist. And, and when those go away, uh, is going to be a, a potentially terminal drain on their, on their revenues. Um, so that's, you know, that's how I see it. I think it's just going to be, it's going to be beneficial to some businesses and it's going to be very detrimental to others. I think that's all we've got time today for today's podcast. Um, thanks Pete for your time. Thanks Del. Great to uh, talk to you again. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of Contextual Advertising 101. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. To see all the show notes and resources mentioned in this episode, head over to seedtag.com slash 101. This episode is brought to you by Seedtag, the world's leading contextual advertising company. Contextual intelligence allows you to engage with consumers within their universe of interest on a cookie-free basis. By delivering ads into content, we capture users' attention faster and retain it longer. Learn more and reach out to us at seedtag.com.